Grace and peace, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be with you. I'm with my brother, Ruben. We're glad to be with you. I bring you greetings from the First Baptist Church of Lisbon. Uh, it's a great joy to be with you, to visit you again. And after what we have sang already, it is appropriate for me to start with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It seems that almost an unquestionable fact that the person that we know as Jesus Christ was a man who lived and died in Palestine around 2,000 years ago. It seems that nobody puts that at stake at this point. But if we exclude the most basic facts of this man's existence, the answer to this question has been answered in different and often even contradictory ways. Who is Jesus? To his fellow Jews, contemporary Jews, in particular the religious leaders of his time, Jesus was a false prophet, worthy of death because of blasphemy. He claimed to be God, but he was merely a man. And even today, the Jewish religion sees in Jesus just this mere man, a religious leader and teacher, but an imposter, a false prophet. If you go, for example, to the academia, the materialists, those who deny any reality beyond matter, with their so-called historical critical method, cannot also agree on who Jesus is. Some have thought, sought to find what they call the historical Jesus because of the assumption that the Gospels are not reliable accounts of Jesus' life, but texts written by the disciples who invented a series of stories and miracles, above all, of course, the resurrection, to avoid the fact that he was a failure. But the fact is that after studies and discussions at the highest level, these academics bumped into the stubborn reality that they were not able to find conclusions that they could agree despite that they were so sure of their scientifical methodology. In academia, even today, for some, Jesus was at best a mere dreamer, to others a failed revolutionary, for even others a lunatic. But what the academia bumps is into a fact that it cannot explain, and we must account for. How does a man who had a public ministry of only three years in a complete secondary area of the Roman Empire, Palestine, with no renowned followers, whose disciples were mostly people without any social influence, become someone who changes the history of mankind? How does a failed man with cowardly disciples becomes by any measure possible the most important historical fact in person of mankind. No matter how much academics and politics these days try to avoid the religious connotation, our time is still divided in two because of the birth of this man. There is the time before Christ and after Christ. So I ask you, who is Jesus? Because even among those who admire this man in some way, the proposals multiply. For some, Jesus was a religious teacher. Some say that he was even 
so important that he has reached a level of religious experience like no other. People say, some, that he had this sort of special level of spiritual consciousness, whatever that means. An example whose teachings should be studied, an example to be admired, but still a mere man. Even among religions, some even believe Jesus to have been a prophet. One of the greatest prophets ever, but still a mere man. Others go even a little bit further. They even affirm that Jesus is God, a kind of a lesser God, but still a God. So the question still stands. Who is Jesus? This is a discussion that has been going for centuries, since his lifetime even. If you think about the first centuries of the history of the church, you will read the creeds and how the church has come together. And those creeds try to answer basically one question, which is this. Who is Jesus? In fact, we must remember that this was even a discussion that Jesus himself experienced during his lifetime. Do you remember, for example, what we read in Matthew 16, 13 to 15? It says, And when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he questioned his disciples, saying, Whom do men say is the Son of Man? And they said, Some John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And you, who do you say that Jesus is? This is probably the most important question that I can ask you. This is probably the most foundational question for your life. Because the answer to this question will define your relationship with this Jesus. So I invite you to open your Bibles in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 13 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, 13 to 20. But before we read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is your church represented in this place that comes together in the day that you have given us to rest and to worship you. It is as your people, a people that belongs to you, that we come before you to worship you but also to listen from you. We do not want to listen to opinions of men. We want to listen to you. We want to read your word. We want to have your word explained to us and apply to our lives. But, oh, Father, that is a task that no man can do by himself. That's why we come to you in prayer. We come to you and ask that the Holy Spirit might be working among us. That it might be working in me 
so that my words are faithful to your word, but also that the Holy Spirit might be working among us so that we can understand the word that is being preached. Oh, Father, that this word might be treasured and received in our hearts. We want to know you more. We want to love you better. So help us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians 1, verses 13 to 20. This is the word of God. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether the things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If you pay attention to this text, and if you particularly pay attention to the previous verses, you can see that Paul had been praying for them by thanksgiving and petition. And see how he finishes those prayers. See verse 12. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You see, Christians thank God because we have received an inheritance. More, We read that we did not have even the qualifications in ourselves to receive this inheritance. It was A gift from God. Then verse 13 tells us what God did to qualify us. He said that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transported us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So verse 13 in this text functions as kind of a transitional verse between the end of the section of Paul's prayers in this that we call a Christological hymn, a hymn about the person of Jesus. So in verse 12, Paul says that God fulfilled his plan, how? By qualifying us to be partakers of the inheritance. And that's in verse 13, he tells us how he did, what he did, and then how he did it, which was through his son, the son of his love. So immediately the Son is here presented as someone who has dominion over Christians. There is a kingdom and there is a king. And that king is Jesus himself. All people who were made able to receive the inheritance now belong to this king. Now belong to this kingdom. 
Paul starts first to celebrate the Father, thanking Him for all that He has already done, interceding for what He will continue to do among the church. And now Paul celebrates the Father in the person of the Son. In verses 14 to 20 then, Paul through this hymn presents Jesus and answers to this question. Who is Jesus? Number one, he tells us, see verse 14 and 20. Jesus is God's means for our salvation. See verse 14 and 20 again. We read, in whom, in whom Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now see verse 20 again. And by him, him again, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So what do we learn here? See verse 14. Paul presents Jesus as the agent through whom God accomplished his redemptive plan. God acted on our behalf, and he did it, accomplished our salvation through his Son, through Jesus. But see also that there was a price, and the ransom paid was Jesus himself, was through his blood. There was a sacrifice. He set us free from guilt. The text says, forgiveness of sins. Second verse 20 we have reconciliation with God. Jesus is this agent, the instrument through whom God has reconciled us to himself. Verse 14 and 20 then are two sides of the same coin. Redemption that leads to reconciliation. Simply put, this is the Christian message which we call the gospel which means good news. God created us, but we all disobeyed God. Christians call disobedience sin, right? And this sin puts us in enmity towards God permanently. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make God accept us again because we are imperfect. We rebelled against God. So because we could not do nothing of ourselves, God acted. God did what we could never do for ourselves by sending His Son, God, with Him to live the perfect life that we could never live and imputed to us this justice, this perfect life, so that God can look at at us as if we were perfect because Jesus lived this perfect life for us. But he did more because he offered also himself the blood that is called here. He offered his life for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what we call the gospel. Jesus is the agent through whom God saved us, redeemed us, which led to our reconciliation with God. If you are right with God today, it's because Jesus acted on your behalf. It's because when you could not do anything for yourself, when you were condemned before God to eternal punishment, God himself became man 
so that you could be saved and made right with God. And Jesus is this agent in a world affected by sin. Jesus brings restoration. And he was able because he paid a high price to do it. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the means by which God fulfills his plan of salvation. It was through him and because of him that we are here seated today. But he is more. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the perfect image of God. See verse 15 and verse 19. The beginning of verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. And then verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, let us think just for a moment, what is an image? That's what we read in verse 15, right? He is the image of the invisible God. What is an image? Image means something that reflects or represents another thing, right? When you look to the mirror, what do you see? You see an image of yourself, a reflection of yourself. The idea of image appears in the Bible right at the beginning. Do you remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27? What do we read? We read these words. Then God said, Let us make men in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the the, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humankind was created how? In the image of God. Adam and Eve should stand in creation as representatives of God. They were not supposed to wonder. They were not supposed to try to seek their identity as if it was something obscure or something that they should seek to find. They were given an identity right at creation. Who were they? They were human beings created in the image of God. That's who they are. They were created as images to reflect God, not to reflect themselves. It is therefore not a surprise that after we sin, after we lost or disfigured this image in us because of sin, of disobedience, of impurity... That God's plan is to transform us how? Into the likeness of him again. In his image. Now represented perfectly in whom? In the person of Jesus. That's why when we come to the New Testament over and over and over again, what is God's plan? Is that the image of Jesus might be in you. (laughs) That you might grow in the image of Christ. That you might be more like him. We read this, Romans 8, 29, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. That is God's plan. After his image was disfigured, is to create new people. After whom? The image of Jesus, who is the perfect representation of the Father. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. So in verse 14 to 20, 
Jesus is the means through whom God accomplished his plans. Now in verses 15 and 19, Paul, Paul clearly affirms that Jesus is more than just God's agent. Again, we have these two complementary and progressive sides of the same coin. First, how is Jesus presented? Jesus the man is the visible image of the invisible God, verse 15. And second, he is the perfect and full representation of God, verse 19. Everything the Father is, the Son is. He is perfect, as Jesus taught his disciples, Matthew eleven twenty-five. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son in the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Do you want to know God? Know Jesus. Jesus is the perfect invisible representation of God. Do you remember when Jesus, were, Jesus was having the last speech to his disciples, trying to comfort them? And then at some point, one of the disciples, Philip, in John 14, 8 and 9, asks this, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus answers, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, I am before you, Jesus says. Do you want to know God? Know me, because I'm the perfect representation of God. You see, the Father not only acts through Jesus, although He does. Jesus is the agent of God for our salvation. But He is more than that. To see the Son is the same as to see the Father. Because as Jesus said, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Therefore, Jesus is God, not just the agent of God. For no one can be perfect and complete without being God himself. So first, Jesus is the agent through whom the Father fulfills his plan. Second, he is also the image of the Father. And more, he is not just a perfect image. He is, verse 19, where the fullness dwell. Paul wants us to conclude that the Son of God is God himself. This means that Jesus is far beyond a mere agent of the Father. He is more than a mere mortal prophet because he not only carries the message, Jesus is the message, you see. The gospel is Jesus. He is God himself who became man for our salvation. That's why we read in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. If someone wants to know God, one must look to Jesus. Because knowing Jesus is to know God. But He is more. See the final part of verse 15 and verse 18. Who is Jesus? He is the firstborn of the old and of the new creation. So the end of verse 15 and 16 says, the firstborn of all cre over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And then verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So you see, Jesus is placed above all things that were created. Now think about this for a moment. Because he is not just, Jesus is not a mere creature. He is above creation. Moreover, it was through or from him that everything, all things, came into being. As we read also in John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It follows then, note this, because many people say that Jesus is kind of a God. But note this, it follows, according to this text, according to John, that Jesus was not created. Because if he was a a creature, then there was something that was not created by him. Does that make sense? The text says that all things, with no exception, were created by him, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, or powers, everything was created from him and to him. Now, if everything was created by him, he did not create himself. He is not a creature. He is God himself. So it is in this sense of authority that the word firstborn is used here, both in verse 15 and 18. Note this because it is important. Firstborn does not mean the first to be created. Because as we have seen, that would be a a contradiction of the text itself. Because Jesus created all things with no exception. You see, and nowadays, we tend to think of first in a temporal sense, as one or the first in the chain, right? When you think about first, you think about an order. The first, the second, the third, the fourth, right? But as someone has said, both in Greek and Jewish religions, they describe God or supreme deities as first because it has to do with first in terms of Authority of position, not in terms of time. Let me give you some biblical examples, particularly from Revelation. When God says in Revelation 1.17, I am the first and the last. Does this mean that God had a beginning and an end? No, that's not the purpose. That's not the idea. That's not what it is in the mind of those people when they hear the first and the last. When they hear the first and the last, it means that he has authority over all things. Fear not, we hear in Revelation. I am the first and the last. Everything is under my control. Also in Revelation 2.8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You see what is said of God, of the Father, is also said of the Son. He was not created. He is God himself. He is the one who has authority over all things. 
because he created all things. And lastly, in Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, biblically, firstborn has a sense of higher status, someone that precedes others in authority. As we read, for example, in Psalm 89, 27, speaking of the Messiah, and I will appoint him to be my my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. You see, what does firstborn mean? He will be appointed as firstborn. What does this mean? It means that he will be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. That's what it means. Here is about someone that will take the throne, the position of the firstborn. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the means by whom or through whom God saved us. But Jesus is also the perfect image of God because he is God himself. Jesus is the firstborn, both of the old and of the new creation. He is the king. He has authority over all things. He is someone that we can trust our lives to because he can. He is able. Do you remember what was the first thing that God said to the disciples when they ascended to the mountain? We usually think of the Great Commission as just a command. But think that the command was not the first thing that Jesus said. The command was not even the last thing that Jesus said. The first thing that Jesus said was, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As a man, I conquered death, and I am the king. Jesus is declaring his authority over all things. And in the end, he promised that he will be with them till the end of times. Do you see the comfort that it is to us? That being God himself, being the one that acted on our behalf for our salvation, He is the one also who has the authority to sustain us. He did not abandon us. He is with us by the Holy Spirit. And you can trust him. Jesus is also number four, the origin, the end, and the sustainer of all things. Brothers, hear these words and be comforted, be strengthened, be encouraged. See the end of verse 16 and verse 17. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. You see, we arrive at the central truth in these verses. We are lifted up to a particular affirmation of this letter. Not only everything was created through Jesus, all things were created to Jesus. He is the origin and the ultimate end of all things created. You see, Jesus, his incarnation, were not plan B in God's mind. God did not found himself surprised because man had rebelled, and now he scratches his head, what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to send my son. It did not happen that way. When things were created, they were already created not only by Christ, but to him. 
That was always the purpose. It is important that we understand what Paul is saying here when he writes that in Christ all things subsist or hold together. You see, the word here points to an understanding that Jesus is someone who gives unity and coherence to all reality. Just think about this for a second. It means that on the one hand, and I think that the most common way that we think about this word is that if something exists, it is because Jesus himself sustains it. Does that make sense? He not only created things, but he sustains everything. If your heart is beating at this precise moment, it's because Jesus is sustaining you. He sustains all reality. But also, think about this, on the other hand, it is only in him that things have meaning. This complementary of meaning is extremely important for us. Because in our daily lives, people lack meaning in the things that they possess and do. Paul says here that all things, everything that exists has no meaning if it is not seen through Christ, in Christ, for Christ. He is the end of all things. This truth is crucial for such an individualistic and self-centered culture as ours. And let us recognize it is a temptation that we feel in our hearts every day. When we say that Jesus is the origin and ultimate end of all things then we understand we are not the center of God's plan. God himself is the center of his own plans. God is the center of his plan because everything was created from him, but also to him. Therefore, we can even say that Jesus came not with the ultimate purpose to save us, but came to glorify the Father. Wasn't that what Jesus himself said? The glory of the Father was his main purpose. The story of salvation does not end in us, but ends in the glory of God. You see, this is so important to let us out of our self-centered life. Understand this, friends. All our lives, everything we do, everything that happens to us, all of our relationships, all of our possessions, if not lived and understood in Christ, they are meaningless. To, to use a biblical expression here, everything that is not lived in Christ is pure vanity. When things are lived and enjoyed for their value or as an end in themselves, when we put our desire on the intrinsic value of things, the end result will be frustration. Because those things will not be able to fully satisfy us. That's one of the things that sin does to us. It promises what it can never deliver. And so we seek pursuing those things over and over and over and over again. Because we are not permanently satisfied. We need to be satisfied again. You see, we can have momentary pleasure or happiness. Perhaps. But it will not be permanent. You may desire wealth, pleasure, even wisdom. But if you do anything or desire anything else by the value of those things, you are deceiving yourself. As we read in the book of Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Under the, the sun, 
all is vanity. In, the NIV puts it in another way. It says, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or even in other words, there is no single thing or action in this world that has a meaning in itself because God created things to him. God created things so that his glory is our end and the end of everything. When we understand who Jesus truly is, when we truly meet him and surrender our lives to this Jesus, then we understand the reason why all things exist. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. If we believe in the Jesus that Paul was preaching, then we can understand the several exhortations that we see in Paul's letters. That we can read exhortations like these. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Or Romans 14, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or even in this very letter, Colossians 3, 17. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Do you understand why these exhortations are here? Because we were created with a purpose. And unless we live for that purpose, we will be living for meaningless things that will pass sooner or later. According to Paul, there is not a single thing in our lives that does not have to do with Christ. There is no single particle of reality that has a meaning outside of Christ. It is a matter of identity. He created us. He saved us. He sustains us. And our lives only have a meaning in Him and when lived for Him. And let me say, this is the way for a simple life. And this is the way that Jesus Himself lived. Everything Jesus did was to glorify the Father. This is why His life was so simple. And allow me to say why our lives so many times are so difficult and complex. Because we pursue so many things at the same time. And we want to put meaning on those things. And we want to seek full satisfaction on those things. When all those things, even if good, only make sense if they are lived for Christ. This is the way for a simple life. The knowledge that everything has a meaning in Jesus really reduces our lives to a simple thing. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and were, was raised. What is Paul saying? Why did Christ die for you? So that when you receive a new life, that life might be dedicated for the purpose that it was created, which is for him. This is the way to a simple life. We are called to a higher life, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever.
Let us be reminded of what our Lord taught in Luke 10, 41 and 42. Speaking and dealing with these two women, that the Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. And there is need of only one thing. Now put your name there. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but you only need one. And Jesus was saying, you only need me. The majority of the concerns in the Western society comes from this fragmentation of our lives. We have family and jobs and friends and church. And unfortunately, the majority of the frustrations comes from a lack of sight. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All things are vanity. What profit have we from all the toil which we toil at under the sun? Why do we do all things? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you do what, what, what you do if not for Christ? And let us be honest, although we recognize that it's still a struggle to us, after we have just read, what else do we need more but him? Brothers and sisters, think about this. We are about to partake together of the Lord's Supper. It is the sign of our salvation. It is with baptism the two signs that the Lord gave to the church so that we are continually reminded of our salvation. So that we come together over and over and over and over again to what really matters. We come to this table, what do we see? It is a sign. It is a representation of what really matters. We partake of the bread, a representation of the body, of the life that Jesus offered for us. We partake of the wine, a representation of the blood and of the suffering and of the cross, the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And knowing this and partaking of this food, what else do we need for our satisfaction? Do you understand, brothers and sisters, we pursue so many things when the thing that truly satisfies us and permanently is here. In our Lord Jesus Christ, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, if you are truly a believer and you partake of it in faith, Jesus is sufficient to you. Sufficient for your salvation, but sufficient also for this life. To give meaning to your life independently of your circumstances. That's why we come every Sunday together to celebrate. We don't come to celebrate our circumstances. We don't come to celebrate because everything in our lives is okay. We celebrate because Jesus is enough to us. We celebrate because he is enough as our hope. We celebrate because we also know that we have been transferred and received his inheritance because of him. So we live for him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Because you have not dealt with us as we deserved. But in your love and grace, you have sent your son. And we want to live for him. 
Help us, Father, to have growth in our lives, to grow in maturity. Help us to be more like your Son. In Christ's name, amen.